You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, January 20th, 2022. This is episode number 198. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to to support our show. Today we're talking about cops and armored car heists, a star-studded cannabis NFT project, Children and Edibles, The War on Drugs 2.0, Europe's Shift Towards Legalization, California Farmers and Their Banking Buzzkill, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. I'm going to start off with my story today because I want to make sure and get it in, because Nanogram doesn't get her story in very often, and this story uh, might get old, so I want to do it now. Uh, My story is a white, rich celebrity, man problem, so get out your hankies. TMZ is reporting that Jim Belushi says, rodents get high on my supply. Weed farming isn't easy. Oh, boo-hoo, Jim, whoever said it was. And by the way, while you're complaining, why not stop for a minute and talk about how hard it is for legacy farmers that you are standing on the backs of? From TMZ, Jim Belushi's reality show, Growing Belushi, is back for a second season. And on Tuesday's TMZ Live, he revealed one of the biggest surprises he's encountered on his 93-acre marijuana farm in Oregon are underground pets. I think they meant to say pests, but he's complaining that... um, Uh, squirrels and gophers are eating up the roots of his plants and he's not sure if they're getting high on it but it's just really hard and um, I'm wondering should we start a GoFundMe for poor Jim? Uh, Should we start a GoFuckMe fund? He's experimenting with a charity idea in Oregon with a pay what you can concept so vets, schizophrenics and homeless people can get the medicine they need. Uh, I found no evidence that his charity idea is yet to take off. He's also lent his name to the Last Prisoner Project. I'll leave it to others to comment on that. Well, in all fairness, um, that, that model may be the only way that he can actually sell his weed in Oregon since it's such a flood up there. Which model is that? 
pay pay what you can pay, pay what you can afford model. Oh, got it. <laughs> I wonder what people are paying. I don't think he's actually doing it, though, Jason. I'm on the side of the rodents on this one. I, I, I want to know. <laughs> I, I, I'm really curious as to why he excluded the deer from from this, because the deer eat more cannabis than any other animal. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. They're just going for his roots. Well, he might have shorted TMZ also because they won't let us put this link up. So this is all we got. So <laughs> maybe they'll I mean, run shoot that up, too. It was playing just a few minutes ago. I don't know what's going on, but it's just it's just doing nothing. But uh, go ahead and uh, click the link and listen. But you got you get the gist of it. It's like, you know what? You poor thing. And, uh, you know, and his celebrity isn't really from his own creative work. It's from his brother's. Well, it's like, welcome to the real world, buddy. Growing cannabis isn't as simple as you think, you know. Well, maybe he thinks that um, it's all about legacy that way, too. What about the caterpillars, you guys? No one's mentioned the caterpillars. Oh, my God, those motherfuckers. Do you, you know, I, I found out, I was, you know, I love to be in my garden and watch the plants grow. And I saw a wasp one day eat a caterpillar. I had no idea that they did that. So wasps are my friend. I think caterpillars are probably the, the most damaging parasite larvae to the cannabis plant. Yeah. Susan, did you say wasps are your friends? Don't, don't. <laughs> don't. don't go there. Go. <laughs> <laughs> shh, shh, shh. I have a special sound, out, sound now for that. Shh. Yes. Shh. What does that mean? They're wasps that lay their eggs in the caterpillars and they eat it and then they hatch out of there. So ah. not just any wasps does Susan like. Susan really likes parasitic wasps. <laughs> so that means that means they're a parasite of a wasp, right? Yes. No. Or vice versa. The the wasp goes into the caterpillar. Whatever. Alice in Wonderland uh, glamorized the caterpillar, and I've always wondered why, because they are nasty. Um, if someone could take the stress out of the news, it's silky smooth Laura DeCaro. She's a staunch defender of LGBTQ rights, able to mediate and practice law in three states. Laura is a valuable voice for the SOC News Hour and is lending her skills as a valued co-producer and weekly moderator. What have you got for us today? Laura. Thanks, Susan. Thank you for that. My story today is actually pretty stressful. It's about policing for profit. Uh, the, the, the title of the article is Kansas and California Cops Used Civil Forfeiture to Stage Armored Car Heists, Stealing Money Earned by Licensed Marijuana Businesses by Jacob Solom for Reason.com. And this is not new to a lot of us in the industry, but it's actually a really well-written, lengthy article about what was going on in both California and Kansas uh, in connection with federal and local partnerships uh, and and how asset forfeiture is actually still a thing. Uh, The article starts out, because the continued federal prohibition of cannabis makes banks and payment processors leery (laughs) of serving state-licensed cannabis suppliers... Many of those businesses rely heavily on cash, which exposes them to a heightened risk of robbery. 
A new federal lawsuit shows that the danger is not limited to garden variety criminals. It includes cops who use federal civil asset forfeiture laws to steal money earned by state legal cannabis businesses. So five times since last May, the sheriff's deputies in both Kansas and California have apparently stopped armored cars operated by Imperial Logistics. The cops made off with cash after three of those stops, seizing a total of $1.2 million, but didn't issue any citations, if this sounds familiar. (laughs) The affidavits supporting the federal forfeiture complaint for one seizure in uh, Kansas that was set up by a county sheriff uh, and the DEA together apparently noted that, quote, marijuana is a controlled substance and illegal under both federal and Kansas state law. But Imperial argues that the DEA's participation in the scheme ran afoul of the Warbacher-Blumenauer Amendment. Many of us know it as Warbacher-Farr or potentially Warbacher-Joyce. Joyce Blumenauer has gotten a bunch of different names now. But it's the spending rider that bars the DOJ, uh, which includes the DEA and the FBI from using any of its funds to interfere with the implementation of a state's medical marijuana laws. And that is a very... Um, strict limitation, but I want to sort of point in here that we used that defense um, to essentially convince the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California to uh, to pull um, a civil asset forfeiture proceeding here several years ago, right before the 2016 election, um, and successfully. So they have... There is precedent for this, although unfortunately it's just in the form of settlements. It's not in the form of uh, a case that we took to the mat. Anyway, so California apparently has a, you know, we have a different system here in California than they have in Kansas. Obviously, we authorize the sale of cannabis. Um, But essentially, the article is, uh, I won't go into too much more detail. I, I highly recommend you read it. It talks about setups by law enforcement um, to essentially entrap people to drive through their jurisdictions uh, and then um, seize their cash uh, under pretextual stops. And uh, Imperial is fighting back with the Institute of Justice, defending it, um, filing claims in the forfeiture proceedings, and Imperial saying that its clients operate in full compliance with applicable state laws, and money laundering compliance uh, requirements, and the Bank Secrecy Act. So we'll see how this one goes. It's definitely one to keep an eye on, though. My name is Lara DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Any thoughts? I- <laughs> I, I do not think that their that their defense for using Rohrbacher Farr is going to give them any play or leeway in this case, mainly because Rohrbacher Farr um, specifically pertains to state licensed uh, cannabis sales, and once you cross a state line, uh, the federal government does have jurisdiction. So whether you are transporting cannabis flowers or money from proceeds from the sale of cannabis mm-hmm. flowers, it's all still um, under their jurisdiction and purview. Okay, but that may or may not be true because you're still interfering with a state's licensed operation. Yes, you know, right? I, I, so I, the, the rule I, I, is, I, I, and but you know, it's actually it's a it's it's that, a really that, good that's question. As long, that's as long people. as that's as that's as long as the people are abiding by 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 the rules, and the rules is nothing's allowed to cross the state line. And so once it crosses but, the state line, that gives the federal government jurisdiction to come in and and, and dictate. Uh-oh. No, that has been the conventional thought, but that's actually being challenged right now with regard to the Dormant Commerce Clause. We've had that conversation on this in this room. 
That's and, not necessarily a hard and fast rule. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Jason makes a good point, but mm-hmm. that would create a distinction between what's going on in Kansas with imperial seizure and what's happening in San Bernardino County with imperial seizure. Because in California, it's not crossing state lines. Mm-hmm. And then on the Kansas end, I think that cuts to the they're entrapping them yeah. because uh, they are deliberately setting this up and pu- deliberately pulling over Imperial's vehicles. So they are directing their resources to interfere with a state legal business. Yes, it has the caveat of crossing a state line, which could potentially take it out of that. But let's see if they actually want to argue that in court or they back down. I don't think also- that crossing the state line is the definitive here at all. I mean, you know, every single wired transaction, every single financial transaction goes through Manhattan. So I guess, you know, from my perspective, it, that is, that's actually not an argument. Um, I, 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 I think it is an argument. And yet the, the courts are going to have the final, the final yeah. say on this. We're all just speculators. <laughs> but at the same time, too, I think it's important to understand, too, that with the asset forfeiture process, one thing that local uh, municipalities have is the ability to do asset forfeiture. And so the locals yeah. can do that. And then they can go a step further and hire a off-duty federal agent on his off time to come in. So then that way they have a full federal seizing authority, which gives them higher uh, a, a higher threshold for what they actually can seize. And this and this very mill may be the state of what's happening in Kansas. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it may be what's going on in Kansas. California obviously prohibits those federal-local partnerships on some levels, not for this type of transaction, but for on some levels they do. Yeah. Fucking pirates. Yeah. I wish Chris was here. I was hoping he'd be on the, in the room today. Well, we do know one thing. It's all about the money. Follow <sighs> Such such a depressing uh, subject, but no, but no, but a great great discussion that needs to be had, and we should probably do a full room on it. I'm, I'm sure there's so many people that listen to the show that have personal stories um, mm-hmm. about this awful thing that happens. Um, but let's keep moving. So up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes, and he's also a really dope husband. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got, Rico? Oh, yeah. Today's coming out of Benzinga, uh, the Weldon Project, Burn One, and Black Comics launch NFT project with Snoop Dogg and John Jennings to support cannabis reform. Now, whether you understand what a non-fungible token is, you believe in what it can do, or even acknowledge NFTs exist because all this Bitcoin, Web3, blockchain bullshit ain't a real thing anyways because things were different when you were growing up, it doesn't matter. What matters is NFTs are definitely here to stay, are making people a ton of money fast, and have inevitably made their way into the cannabis industry. Per Benzinga's reporting, cannabis-focused blockchain company Burn One is partnered with social justice reform uh, nonprofit The Walden Project and the Black Comics Collective to develop an NFT project. A collection of artwork by the New York Times bestselling artist John Jennings will be combined with unreleased music by Snoop Dogg to create a 4,200-piece semi-generative 
NFT with proceeds going directly to cannabis reform and advocacy. It's set to launch on February 5th. An unreleased Weldon Angelos produced track titled Smokin' will be paired with an original portrait of him by Jennings, uh, who's also the publisher of Megascope Books, and he is also a media studies professor at UC Riverside. A quick look at Jennings' resume will show you that he's a bad motherfucker. Uh, One might ask themselves, is there anything that this dude does not do? The answer is obvious. The one thing he doesn't do is fuck around. The article goes on to say that 65% of proceeds will be donated to the Weldon Project, and in additional... Uh, in addition to that, Burn One and the Black Comics Collective plans to release four more NFTs of Jennings' artwork by spring. Angelos is quoted by saying in the article, This NFT project with the Black Comics Collective and Burn One is exciting because it allows me to further our mission while creating an exciting new blend of art, music, and activism. For those unfamiliar with his, um, with his story, he's a formerly incarcerated entrepreneur, served 13 years of a 55-year sentence for selling less than, less than an ounce, and uh, was pardoned by former president and Jason Beck fanboy Donald Trump. Before that, he was a hip-hop producer, record label owner, and uh, notably worked with Snoop, Tupac, and other big names of that era. Uh, Jennings said to Benzinga, It's such an honor to have my work associated with this cause and also with such an amazingly gifted collection of cultural activists and creators. Uh, We are in the renaissance regarding uh, the fusion of art and technology. Burn One's a tech ecosystem working to integrate blockchain into the cannabis industry through their signature cryptocurrency, Burn One Coin, uh, which claims to automatically generate funds for nonprofit organizations and those engaged in cannabis reform and justice by no- donating 3% of every transaction to folks negatively affected by the war on drugs. The Black Comics Collective is an uh, NYC-based org celebrating cultural diversity in comics founded by Deirdre Holloman, uh, former director of education and exhibitions at the Schomburg Center of Research in Black Culture. And uh, the BCC brings together um, a large community of black writers, illustrators, publishers, and others who depict a dynamic range of global black experiences, aesthetics, and social issues in comics. Uh, Shadiness of a lot of the mainstream blockchain, crypto, NFT, bro news aside, um, I love what all parties are doing here, and I'm pretty damn excited to see how this project plays out. This is Rico Lamit, ranked world's dopest dad in webs one, two, and three also in the metaverse, reporting live for State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear what everybody else thinks about this story. I love seeing this kind of innovation. I, I, I hope they pull it off. And, and I think we should recognize, too, that blockchain is being used in all parts of our industry, and it's going to play an important role. Um, I know there's some folks in NorCal that are using, I'm in, involved in it peripherally, uh, using it to protect genetics. And so I, I, I give these guys a high five. I hope they pull it off. Sounds like a great project. Yeah, I really do, man. Sounds really dope. I don't understand NFTs at all, but I am excited for Web 3.0. For sure. Calafari, did you want to weigh in on Rico's headline? Yeah, thanks. Uh, This is Jason from Calafari. And last year we released uh, NFTs on 420 and just dove into the space. And since we've seen lots of cannabis companies jumping in, like Crypto Cannabis Club and a few others. And right now we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next in the NFT space. And I've been studying lots of different projects. And this one sounds super promising, you know, because most of them just sound like a scam, you know. Um, but I, I, I'd never heard of the Weldon Project, so this is the first I've heard of it. So they're already getting the word out about, uh, you know, about a project that, that I didn't know about, and I've been studying the space. So I'm excited to see what this delivers. And um, I, I think NFTs are really a new art form, and this sounds like it's really 
you know, making the most of blending the most of art and music. And I'm excited to see what that brings. Susan, I think the governor um, can give us both a, a, a huge um, educational session on NFTs, how they work and um, how they can get like artists and um, a lot of people uh, paid off of um, uh, their creation in different ways. Web 3.0 all the way, man. Awesome. Yay, Nicholas. I'd love to talk to you about that. I, I think I want to uh, use the NFTs for my second book. Hey, Susan, just real quick, I was going to add that Greenspoon Martyr is doing a webinar tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific on NFTs. I'm involved in a project, so um, I'm learning as much as I can right now. Oh, sweet. Eric, send me the, the link to that, and I'll put it in today's I newsletter. Will. Um, I think we're at time, so let's keep okay. smoking the news. Now I get to introduce Ms. Liz Rogan. She is our cannabis educator, our favorite brand strategist and healthcare consultant. She's also the founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County and our data nerd. <laughs> Liz, what have you got for us? Good morning. Thank you, Laura. Happy Thursday, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and joining us today. My story comes out of KUTV, and that's out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And this story is by Jim Spiewak. hope I'm not destroying that there. The headline reads, all Utah prescribers can recommend medical cannabis cards without specialized training. So on Wednesday, the Utah Department of Health started implementing a new law that increases access for medical cannabis recommendations for qualified patients. Under the law, the eligible patients can get a recommendation from a physician who is not registered with the state to recommend medical cannabis. So currently, right now, there's about 800 prescribers who have gone through a state-required training course so they can recommend medical cannabis. But in the new program, it's called the Limited Medical Provider Program. It doesn't require a licensed doctor, uh, DO, APRN, or PA, which is physician's assistant or a podiatrist, to go through a medical cannabis training course, which opens the possibility of recommendations from 21,000 licensed prescribers across the state. So this change does come with a big catch. So prescribers who don't take the training course are capped at recommending 15 patients uh, to 15 patients. So Rich Osborne, who runs the state's Center for Medical Cannabis, says, we'll just make sure they stick to 15 and our staff doesn't approve any cards that are connected to a provider over 15. He said that the fact that providers are no longer need extra training to recommend comes down to trust. We would hope they would do research uh, recommending medical cannabis, just like they would for any other drug they would recommend, Osborne says. So note, uh, any patients younger than 21 will still need to obtain a recommendation from one of the 800 previously registered medical providers. And the department said there's currently 41,000 Utah residents with a medical cannabis card, and there are 14 medical cannabis pharmacies. One more is supposed to open this year. So 15 for 41,000 people is... Uh, a lot. As someone who has worked as a healthcare consultant and liaison for years between doctors and patients, I constantly see that there's a huge lack of information on the con in the conventional medicine arena. And I feel like they're really putting this in the hands of the patients immediately. I think safe access is key, but they do need to have guidance as every single body is different. And this is plant medicine, but it does have some drug-drug interactions. And knowing someone's medical history and the medications they're taking is is very important when recommending medical cannabis, especially for dosage and other uh, methods of ingestion. But if the prescribers don't have experience at all, is this safe? 
um, there doesn't seem to be one uh, place where they can all go for clear, concise information, though there is a lot of movement and a lot of training programs moving forward at universities. Um, so uh, my father is a physician and he always reminds me of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. So, but he tells me that means making sure you understand it before you prescribe it. So, and the word pharmacy spelled with a PH, I think is a slippery slope because if a uh, medical, uh, went to schedule two, only pharmacists could dispense it. So, I am hopeful that um, this is going to be great for the people of Utah, but I'm also hesitant to see how this plays out. And I'm wondering, just because it's Utah, will they have a cap uh, to have lower THC cannabis like they do their alcohol? <laughs> this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear what you guys think. Yeah, Utah's a mess. I was reading an article out of the, the San Francisco Chronicle about Utah the other day. Um, and just people driving hours to get their medicine and having to return it for mold and other issues. I mean, and it's so expensive there. It's just, they're trying to prohibit it. The people feel. Fuck Utah. (laughs) 21,000, 15 dispensaries for over uh, that many people is crazy. And then if it's, if it's Boof, then what? Yeah. Boof-ta. So we were at the end of the road for that story. So he's known for smoking the greatest weed in the world. But on cold winter days, the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer just might throw on a mink coat to piss off PETA, hop in his private jet and head out to the warmer winds of Mar-a-Lago to discuss proposals for the desalinization of white tears with Donald Trump. Up next, we've got Jason Beck. What you got for us today, my brother? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Hope everyone's having a fantastic week this week. And today my story comes out of Mississippi, where I had the, the ability to actually be in Mississippi and see some uh, on the ground, on the ground action going going on out there. And the Mississippi House has passed an amendment, an amended medical marijuana bill. Before House lawmakers voted to pass the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Act, several changes were made to the bill in in the committee. The Drug Policy Committee amended the measure to transfer all oversight from the Department of Agriculture and Commerce to the Department of Health, as well as restructuring zoning regulations. The amendment also tightened restrictions on how much uh, cannabis a participant can purchase in a week. Republican Representative Yee Yancey chairs the committee. He says he... He says this reduces the total amount purchasable of, of cannabis from three and a half ounces per month to three ounces. And so we are coming in in a cautious way to start a program, see how it goes and get our report back each year and see what we need to do to, in order to increase it. Let there let there be more testing, more research and let the science catch up with the politics, if you will. In the original ballot initiative voted for by Mississippians, the monthly limit for medical cannabis would have been five ounces. This most recent version of the bill cuts those allotments by 40 percent. Jonathan Brown is director of Grassroots Community Headquarters, which gathers signatures for the original ballot initiative. He says this is a decent foundation since the governor was calling for much stricter limits. If I had my my Druthers, it would it would be still at five ounces a month for sure. I think that three ounces is a reasonable compromise with what the governor is asking for, which was really beyond a pale. 
And so I think this is a sign to the governor that the legislator is negotiating in good faith. And so while it's not optimal for for patients, there's room to change it later in future sessions. All, All attempts to amend this measure in the House chamber failed, including amendments that would strengthen restrictions on lawmakers participating in the cannabis industry and uh, allowing farmers uh, to grow cannabis outdoors. Well, I do think that this is a step in the right direction of what Mississippi needs to to have done in order to uh, pacify Governor Tate Reeves' um, uh, stance on the fact that one-eighth of an ounce actually equals 11 joints. And uh, I wish Mississippi the best uh, because they definitely need a lot of economic stimulus uh, help in that state. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. An ounce isn't an ounce isn't an ounce. There, you know, it's just ridiculous to have limits like that. <clears throat> what if what if your need is uh, topicals and you need a lot of weight to make right. it topical? Well, um, right. I, it, I don't it, think it, it, uh, I don't think it's meant for patients right. to to make their own medicine at all whatsoever. The, the the point of this is so then that way they have the access to the medicine that they actually need. I mean, isn't it oxymoronic to limit? the amount of medicine that a medical uh, cannabis patient needs? I totally right, do. It's not alcohol. I, I, I totally it's do. It's not alcohol, Jason. It's like, it's like you know, you get, you get an ounce of 12% THC versus an ounce of fire. I mean, yeah, but there, there's every, every, single, every single state has some type of limit, although I don't believe that any of those limits are based out of science. They're all based out of practicality. Um, but the, rea- the reality is, I mean, California has a medical limit. Every state has a medical limit for what people can purchase. Yeah, but I mean, California's limits uh, on the daily are more than Mississippi's proposed limit for an entire month. I, 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 there's no rhyme. I totally agree with you, Brandon. And that's that, that, that's why I stated these things are are based out of thought, not based out of actual knowledge or scientific data. I don't think anyone here has said that this is a good idea. That's just what it is, and that is what's passing in Mississippi. I mean, if this is a necessary first step to get it past this governor. I mean, perhaps, you know, next time around you get a more uh, liberal governor who's willing to work with the product and the program. This this still criminalizes the habitual medical user and forces them into the illicit market. Like, that's not even an eighth a day. I know plenty of people who consume at least that. It is, it is definitely less than an eighth a day. That's 100% for sure. And I, I know I consume more than an eighth a day myself. Uh, we're over time on this headline. Let's keep moving. All righty then. Up next, we have my girl Priscilla Agoncillo. She was voted as the, one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history. She's the CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League. And um, what do you have for us today, Priscilla? Thank you so much, Laura. Um, So my article today is what happens when a child accidentally eats a cannabis edible. Uh, So the article says, as copycat cannabis market surged last year, pediatricians and attorney generals alike warned the public about edibles that resemble and taste like popular candies, cookies, and cereal. Despite their best efforts, the products still have managed to land in the hands of some children, causing great alarm. Even in Colorado, the New York Times points out where legislators uh, succeeded in standardizing child-proof packaging and clear labeling. Uh, In that case, in in Colorado, THC must be written out next to the logo. Unintentional cannabis exposures have seen a steady uptick. Nationally, the issue has exploded. Five years ago, there were just 187 exposures amongst children under the age of 12 reported. Last year, there were 3,100, and the majority of them were amongst children under the age of five. Edibles are almost always responsible for these exposures. 
So what happens after a child ingests cannabis? Well, it really varies. More often than not, they just become sleepy. One in five children will experience more serious symptoms, though. Uh, Some will have trouble waking up from sleep or may even have a seizure. If a child somehow manages to get his or her hands on your supply, they recommend in the article to call a poison control center. Um, But more likely than not, you'll just need to watch your kid as they nod off to sleep. So that's where the story ends. Really not much info or suggestions. So I would like to add some tips as a decades-long cannabis edibles user and a canny mo- a can of mommy. Uh, number one, lock your shit up, period. Don't trust and rely on the kid-proof packaging. Buy a lockbox. Treat cannabis edibles and your concentrates just like your Glock or your Smith & Wesson. So lock it up. Use a, a, a Pelican box. Those are really great. Um, there, there's some really great things for you to lock your medicine up. Uh, two, calm yourself and remember that zero people in the history of mankind ever um, have died from cannabis. There is no lethal dosage amount of consumption that has been proven for cannabis. Um, and again, you need to be calm for your kid. Other things, uh, don't give them milk. Uh, THC molecules uh, bond to lipids or alcohol. With the fat in milk, it could assist in processing it even faster. Give them water, Gatorade uh, for hydration. Um, create a soothing calm environment this is really obvious Uh, let them sleep Um, you can also use zero thc cbd oil drops this can help neutralize the effects of thc Uh, another interesting thing to look into when i was setting up a cannabis pharmaceutical company in columbia i came uh, across a product that definitely helps neutralize ingestion of THC. And there may be some products out in the market similar to it essentially the main active ingredient uh, ingredient is um, olive tall it's a naturally occurring organic compound. Uh, the cannabis plant internally produces a related substance, which is olive acid, or o- OLA. And it's hypothesized that the plant in turn utilizes OLA to biosynthesize and the uh, THC. You can find more uh, info on this through a white paper published uh, about its neutralization effects on THC. It was uh, published in Wiley Interscience um, back in September of 2008. So this is Priscilla, advocate for all can of parents out there, uh, reporting for the SSC News Hour. Any correspondents have any other tips? I'd like to hear from uh, Maggie Wilson. We've got her up from the audience. Maggie, did you want to weigh in? Hey, Susan. Yes, I wanted to say that uh, recently this year, we experienced where one of our children did eat some THC. And I want to say firsthand that I think that the first thing you need to do is immediately give your kid CBD. We immediately gave our child Ohi Energetics, which is a very bioavailable, like fast-acting CBD. And within seconds, visibly stopped shaking, stopped everything that was progressing and the momentum going the other way, and ate like five pieces of toast, but didn't fall asleep. And it was two hours after they had consumed the edible. So as a can parent who has had a child ingest their own product, and this was, this was, you know, Priscilla's right, you can't trust your kid to do shit, because I specifically said, do not touch what's on that, I'm taking a photo, do not touch that, and I come back, and it had been eaten, so <laughs> don't trust your kid, but also get a fast-acting, bioavailable CBD to have, because if you do that, you won't have to call poison control, you won't have to go through the immense amount of stress that comes with your child consuming because you can't trust kids even if you lock your shit up. Priscilla, Priscilla, did you say smoke and Wesson? If I did, that was a Freudian slip because I'm smoking. <laughs> and let's keep smoking the news.
All right. So up next, you headed conservative and May with Mayflower Roots. Um, that's an avid supporter of safe banking and never backs down from a debate with cannabis lovers across the aisle. Now that Sarah Fox isn't on with us, she completely owns the female Republican point of view here on NewsHour. Up next, it's Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good morning, Rico. I'm coming to you all from uh, the Mile High City, Denver, Colorado, out here talking to folks about pot. Always love that. Uh, my headline is coming uh, from Marijuana Moment. Um, and of course, it's about safe banking. Uh, bipartisan Pennsylvania senators to file marijuana banking protection bill as congressional reform stalls. As congressional lawmakers continue to pursue a bill to federally protect banks that work with state legal marijuana businesses, a bipartisan pair of Pennsylvania state senators have announced they will soon be introducing companion legislation. Senator John DeSanto and Sharif Street distributed a co-sponsorship memo to colleagues on Tuesday, unveiling their plan to file a bill that would safeguard banks and insurers against being penalized by state regulators. The senators serve as chairman and minority chairman of the Banking and Infrastructure Insurance Committee. While financial institutions are generally more weary of facing consequences from federal regulators under the current policy of prohibition, the state-level reform could further empower banks to work with Pennsylvania's medical cannabis market as congressional legislators try to advance the federal policy change. The senators noted that there is 2014 federal enforcement guidance in place for banks and the marijuana industry, but adherence to this guidance does not immunize financial institutions from prosecution, and most will not bank cannabis-related businesses without legislative action. As a result, many cannabis-related businesses are locked out of the banking system without access to financial tools and are forced to operate exclusively in cash. This is a public safety risk as dispensaries are targets for robberies that put patients, employees, and communities at risk. There's not much the Pennsylvania legislature can do to get cannabis banking reform enacted at the federal level, but the pending legislation would make it so no state agency could prohibit, penalize, or otherwise discourage a financial institution or insurer from providing financial or insurance services to a legitimate cannabis-related business or the business associates of a legitimate cannabis-related business, according to preliminary draft language of the bill. It also says agencies cannot recommend, incentivize, or encourage a financial institution or insurer to not provide services just because a business is associated with marijuana. Further, state agencies could not take adverse or corrective supervisory action on a loan made to a legitimate cannabis-related business. In this new co-sponsorship memo, Uh, DeSanto and Street stressed that banking's difficulties in the cannabis space are not limited to those businesses that have direct contact with the cannabis plant, but also those entities that receive payments from a cannabis firm, such as real estate owners, security firms, utility providers, vendors, and employees. Congressional lawmakers have made similar points as they've pushed for the enactment of the Safe Banking Act, which has passed the House five times in some form, but now has stalled in the Senate. That bill is designed to reduce cash-motivated crimes, improve tax collections, and spur economic growth and development, the Pennsylvania uh, senator said. Access to the financial system for the state legal cannabis businesses further ensures a safe and well-regulated market. Um, Me not being a financial expert, um, I really don't think this does too much for the major uh, banks in the state, um, you know, that would still fall under all the federal guidelines. Uh, But for state chartered banks, this could be a boon to the cannabis businesses in Pennsylvania. Um, Since 
the feds can't get it done, it's nice to see states still stepping up uh, to try and fill the gaps for their cannabis businesses. Uh, this is Gretchen with State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm still a little wary of this because um, other states said that they'd do the same thing. We, we just don't see it happening. California has some similar rules in place. Right. That's what, that's what I was saying. Like, yeah. Yeah. It hasn't, hasn't affected our banking situation here, clearly. At all. <laughs> Does it help at all? Are you looking at small state chartered banks? Because if yep. you're looking at a yeah. major you know, yeah. national bank, it's not going to do shit. Yeah, they, well, they, they have um, they have risk budgets, and um, a lot of them, if they yeah. are actually going to touch um, any of those uh, companies, they usually have like one or maybe two accounts that they can service at the whole bank. Some bullshit. We should Pass just, banking. We should just use the bank. That Pass the state uses. banking. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm not taking the bait. Just, Don't take the bait. You, Let's keep. Yeah, you know you want safe banking, Rico. Just use the bank that the states use. Let's keep smoking the news. Okay, okay. Sorry about that, folks. Up next, we have one of my favorite people on our show. We have Mr. Stone Slade. With a name like that, you know he's hitting the high road in the right ways. Stone, what have you got for us today? Thank you, Laura. Today, uh, my story comes from Haley B. Miller at the Cincinnati Inquirer. The top executive of Ancient Roots, who opened in 2018 as a medical cannabis cultivator and processor in Southwest Ohio, had his employee license suspended last week after regulators accused him of giving out free samples. Now, that's a problem because it's illegal to divert cannabis from the tightly regulated program crafted by state lawmakers in 2016. The Department of Commerce reported that Ancient Roots CEO David Haley gave away product to visitors at his Wilmington, Wilmington excuse me, facility that were intended for distribution to area dispensaries. The company's licenses are still in effect, but Haley's suspension is indefinite, and he'll no longer be able to access the company's facilities or records during this time. At this point, he, he has the opportunity but has not requested a, a hearing to challenge the decision. Department officials who have been investigating the incident since November found that Haley had failed to securely store his products and maintain accurate records. For example, the inventory system incorrectly showed that the cannabis given away by Haley was still in the processing uh, facility's vault. A department spokeswoman declined to provide additional details about the allegations or say whether the matter has been referred over to law enforcement. Now, I personally don't know the first thing about laws and requirements of running a regulated medical cannabis grow, and I don't know the amount of can cannabis that was given away, and I do know that the, the laws will differ, differ from state to state. For me, on one hand, I completely understand that David Haley broke the law in Ohio when he handed out free cannabis samples to visitors. But on the other hand, I find it more than frustrating that many states have no problem regulating cannabis, which has caused no deaths on record, similar to how they regulate alcohol, which, according to the CDC, attributes to an annual uh, 79,000 deaths due to abuse, another 25,000 deaths thanks to drunk drivers. Yet alcohol seems to get a bigger pass. We have uh, approximately 8,000 breweries and 2,000 distilleries across the country that are able to invite Americans in every day to enjoy beer and spirits, tastings, as well as uh, purchasing drinks, bottles, and growlers to take home. Currently, Ohio only has med medicinal, medicinal cannabis, but will vote on adult use this coming November, and there's a strong chance that if approved, it will be re regulated how the state regulates alcohol. Again, I don't condone what Mr. Haley did. I'm sure he knew he was breaking the law, considering doctors in Ohio can't give out free samples like they can for side effect riddled pharmaceuticals. I'm just saying that I hope when we deschedule this plant, 
we can at least make it uh, access to it as free and easy as it is for a bunch of Sunday fun day drinkers to spend their day sipping on whiskey flights. I'd love to know what you guys think. I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Stone, did you call those places booferies? Uh, booferies, yes, sir. Uh, booferies, and uh, I've got nothing for distilleries, but yes. <laughs> the sampling has been a big problem for the event industry. <clears throat> we need to fix it already. But let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. We've got a lot of stories still. Let's go. So this fifth-generation Californio is an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background. Um, we also know him here as the freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Up next, one of my favorite people on the team, international man of truth-telling Eric Hislereta. What you got for us today, my man? Hey, Rico. Thanks for that intro. Uh, hey, everybody. Great to be here today. Um, my headline is from New Frontier Data's blog, and it's Markets Great and Small Leading Europe's Continental Shift Toward Legal Cannabis. Um, I really think it's important we keep an eye on European countries here in the States with their financial clout, especially as importers. They're already making a global impact in places like Canada and South America. Within the EU, there's also a lot of movement going on. And like the article says, the focus here is on Germany, Europe's largest economy, and Malta, one of the smallest. Uh, quoting here, as New Frontier Data reported eight months ago, Malta is serving as a harbinger for reforms. Last month, it officially ad adopted its first tentative steps for cultivation and consumption allowing adults to grow up to four plants at home and carry up to seven grams at any time while still prohibiting its use in public or in the presence of children. With an estimated population of 500,000, the Mediterranean archipelago is best known for its tourist-tempting landscapes. Some 24 kilometers to the north, Germany and its approximate population of 84 million features nearly 190 times more residents and the and the continent's largest economy. Germany's recent and largely unanticipated momentum to adopt a legal market was spurred by its new coalition government, taking actions to both promote the country's cannabis market to new levels, if also stirring serious concern among its neighbors and other European countries. That's what Germany does. Um, following intense and largely secretive negotiations throughout last fall, the federal proposal means to establish a regulated market for adult sales and consumption while promoting broader reform policies such as quality controls, regulated and tax dispensaries, and youth protection laws. Now the country is expected to lead the European Union and the wider continent of Europe into greater liberalization and acceptance for cannabis, with adult use sales expected to lead other European countries towards considering a transition from medical use to full adult use markets. Uh, because of its federal structure, Germany's reforms are likely to be enacted state by state, with its more progressive cities like Berlin, Frankfurt, and Cologne being among the earliest adopters. As for regulatory protocols, all that the new coalition government has so far pledged is to allow for controlled adult use sales in licensed shops. It's assumed that ordinary pharmacies are likely to provide retail and dispensing spaces with licensing deals thrashed out as the situation develops. Um, it also suggests that exporting countries will jostle for position in the German market, which domestically has been estimated through decriminalization to enjoy a net benefit to the state of, of sorry, $4.7 billion per annum. Thus, the world's fourth largest economy would establish itself as the single largest country to legalize cannabis. Others seem game for changes too. Luxembourg shares a border with Germany and since 2018 has made noises about legalizing cannabis. Switzerland too has been planning to roll out recreational trial programs this year, starting with Swiss cities being allowed to set up cannabis markets. Zurich is going to be first, featuring organic and locally sourced cannabis. Others worth closely watching include Portugal, Spain, Italy, Austria, Greece, and the Czech Republic. 
Um, lest we get too optimistic about Europe, uh, Europe, this is one of the closing graphs. Still, the sudden sense of inevitability about cannabis seems contradicted by the EU's legislative authority and tendencies for often fragmented attitude among its 27 member states. Europe's remaining 17 non-EU member nations are also divided on the matter. So it's not just the U.S. that's struggling to resolve our differences and make full legalization happen. Our European friends are also zigzagging to the finish line, but at the end of the day, I'm confident we're going to see legalization on both sides of the Atlantic. That's what I got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me out. Speaking of Europe and cannabis, while we comment, audience, raise your hands if you're going to go to Spanibus in March. Who's going to Spanibus? Correspondents, feel I free so to want to. Advocate. I love Spain so much, but I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm planning on attending, and a friend of mine is actually delivering the keynote address. Well, I've never been. I'm so jealous. When you're not pooping, European. Viva España. Oh, Rico. <laughs> that was good, Rico. That was good. Oh, my God. Uh, well, it looks like we only have two members of our audience that are going. That's not very good. So, huh. Interesting. Well, let's keep on uh, rocking the news. Sorry about that. So Brandon is my go-to intellectual property attorney in cannabis. He's also the CEO of Fruits Labs. Brandon, what have you got for us today? Thanks for having me. Uh, today, my headline comes from Syracuse.com. It's a $600 million lawsuit claims fraud by medical marijuana company with New York origins. Uh, a group of Syracuse investors are claiming serious damages against 30 defendants, including Acreage Holdings, one of New York's 10 registered medical cannabis operators. The suit claims Acreage and others colluded to illegally squeeze a partner or a group of partners out of a license. David Fetter and EPMMNY LLC are in court to determine if they actually have the authority to sue Acreage and a host of other defendants. Um, the Syracuse Partners initially founded a company in 2013 that was later acquired by Acreage Holdings and they're claiming that they were entitled to a 25% interest in a license that was issued that the other 75% was held by a group called New York Canna. The suit claims there was an agreement to allocate ownership of the entity applying for the license amongst parties that included EPMMNY, who helped prepare the application, and their principles were named as uh, the parties having legal cannabis industry experience. That application ended up scoring sixth out of 40 applications and initially did not receive a medical license because only five were issued, but later was awarded one when the group of licenses was expanded to 10. They received their license in 2017. Well, that license has now been rolled up into a potential deal worth a purported $3.4 billion with Canopy Growth, where they are acquiring acreage. And this suit could complicate the plan for that acquisition. Uh, the 230-page complaint was filed on October 4th, seeking $200 million for the license, and another $400 million in punitive damages, as well as control of the license. Uh, attorneys representing the defendants have filed motions to dismiss the case on the basis that the plaintiffs lack standing, and that is in part because even though they were included on the license application, the agreement between the parties to be to own and share control of that license was never actually signed. This is why the defendants' attorneys are claiming the parties don't even have standing. However, when they signed their application and submitted it to the state of New York, 
they definitely made uh, sworn representations that everything was true and accurate. And by including these parties in their application, they may have possibly given them standing in this lawsuit. There are a lot of other juicy details, most of them legal jargon. Uh, this case has not yet been decided, but it is playing out. And how it is adjudicated could have tremendous impact on how other situations like these fall out all over the country, because the set of circumstances here is not unusual. Big money coming in, wiggling their way onto the paperwork, and pushing out the people that actually have the legal cannabis industry experience. As an attorney operating in the space for 13 years, I hear this story all the time. I hope that the plaintiffs in this case are able to succeed, uh, and I also hope that it doesn't frustrate this massive deal so that everybody actually gets paid. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Do do we have any idea when this case is going to wrap? As soon as the beat drops. Give me a beat. Is this going to wind on and on, Brandon, or or is it going to uh, finish soon so we can? There are hearings uh, later this month, um, and those hearings will be sort of predeterminative because they are about whether or not these plaintiffs have standing to sue Acreage Holdings and the 29 other defendants that they've named. So if it is determined that they don't have the standing, which would be bad for historical operators who cut these deals with money and lose control, then this case isn't going anywhere because the people bringing it don't have the right to sue. If they do have the standing to sue, then all of those people who have been involved in business deals where they lend their services to applications on the basis that they're going to get you know, a piece of the deal or get chipped off after the license gets awarded, but they're not actually part of the parent company that filed for that license. You know, if this case can continue, it gives all of those people hope to leverage themselves into at least you know, a spot on that license or hopefully some sort of settlement so they actually get paid for the services they've provided. There is a trail of tiers of people who have provided great services to people who ultimately got licenses, who actually never got their payday, even though there's some company holding and operating that license in a legal state. This type of stuff needs to stop happening. We need the judges to step in and save the people that this industry has built, been built on their backs. They deserve to get paid. I love your passion, Brandon. I've got, I've got some of those tears of my own. Uh, we've got Anna up from the audience, and I really uh, look forward to hearing from Victoria, but we do need to kind of go quickly. Yeah, just briefly, I'm from the area, lived there. Uh, Syracuse is a huge agricultural community, truck farmers everywhere, so there's a lot of agriculture already existing there. And the other thing is, is Syracuse is about an hour and a half from Canada, straight up. I had a follow-up question quickly, Brandon. Just wondering, you, you made it sound, I'm just wondering how important it is that they didn't sign that specific contract. So if they deny standing, is that like the fact? Is the takeaway, we should make sure we signed all of our contracts? Or is it beyond that? I think this particular article just highlighted that that's an angle that the defendant's attorneys are taking to try and nip this suit in the bud relatively quickly. Uh, and so I'm paying close attention to that. There are a lot of other details here. I mean, the, the narrative goes all the way back to 2013. So uh, there's a lot more than just an unsigned contract, but it's a, it's a legal issue that's being exposed because the application was submitted and both, both, sides, both parties in this deal signed that application upon submission. 
and swore to the state that everything was true and correct. And now the license holder is trying to claim that people on the application, you know, uh, have no standing uh, in this it, in the agreement or have no standing to sue on the basis of this license being transferred. Um, so assholes. Yeah. Assholes. Let's keep moving. We got to get governor's story in. All right. So this cannabis loving Fresno based protector of freedoms, never afraid to debate anybody anytime. Asked Jackie McGowan or Gavin Newsom, a former raptivist representing the BIPOC conservative tone way too oft left out of the mainstream conversation. He's here to change the narrative. Up next is the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. What you got for us this morning, my man? Bring us home. Thank you. Thank you, Rico. Happy day, State of Cannabis crew. The story I'm bringing to you is actually a research study by Ohio State University professors analyzing the tension between legal cannabis and the financial industry. Emily Caldwell of Ohio State News brought this study to light with their article titled, California Marijuana Growers Can't Take uh, Much to the Bank. Legalization of marijuana in California has helped some financial institutions in the state increase their assets. At the same time, many banks feeling stifled by federal regulations deny services to licensed growers, manufacturers, and retailers, a new study shows. The data made one major thing clear. Legalization of the estimated $16 billion marijuana industry in California has been a boon to the financial institutions. But restricted access to banking from checking accounts to loans perpetuates inequities for those participating in the legal production of cannabis while unlicensed illegal growing and exporting continues as an enormous cash-based sector of the industry. We need a better understanding of the economics of this industry and all of the questions and implications related to it so the impacts of policy choices are intentional said Lee study author Zoe Plakaius, assistant professor of agricultural and environmental and development economics at the Ohio State University. That's a lot. If we want to have a more equitable society and allow communities to keep more of the value of this crop, how do we do that? We first need to characterize what happens in communities when you legalize cannabis. Marijuana is listed as a Schedule One drug under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, so even in states that have legalized recreational and medicinal use of cannabis, it is still a federal crime to possess, buy, or sell marijuana. California legalized recreational cannabis for adults in 2016. Data used by the researchers for the study included bank and credit union data for the years of 2015 through 2020. The analysis showed that assets held by financial institutions and counties that legalized marijuana had increased in that period by almost $750 million. Um, cannabis cultivation licenses had no impact on improving that. That's why I say the government needs to clear the way for community banking so they can do what commercial banks won't. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor. Speak now forever. Hold your peace. Thank you so much, Nicholas. That was a really great show. If you've missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through the headlines every day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Lara and Rico for co-producing and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour, news you can trust.
You have been listening to... You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour. Those Thank you, everybody. Great show. You can join the you can join the webinar about NFTs at the link above. See y'all there. Expressed in this room, not establish any fiduciary relationships. Quiet, Nicole. Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever. Gotta get Bye.